Thank you for listening to this sermon by Grace Point Church. If you'd like to learn more, visit our website at gracepointaz.com, or better yet, come be our guest on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to follow along in the reading this morning and need a Bible, they can be found in the seat backs in front of you. And if you don't have a Bible at home, we would encourage you to take this one home with you. Uh, If you know someone that needs a Bible, please take this one and give it to them. We'd love for you to have God's Word in your hands throughout the week. Today's scripture is going to be taken from the book of James, chapter 2 verses 14 through 17, and that'll be found uh, in the Bible in front of you on page 1012. 1012. Follow along as I read this morning. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, Without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for bringing us here this morning. God, we are so thankful that we, we can be a part of a church that uh, just allows us to have this the, the community aspect to it where we can come and drop off our kids. Um, we thank you so much for what you're doing in this church, especially through the book of James. God, we just pray that you would just touch us this morning. Give Jason the encouragement and words that he needs to, uh, just to, to allow us to hear what we need to hear. Pray for all these things in your name. Amen. Hey, y'all can grab a seat. Look at his hand and his mic back and forth like it's some kind of cipher or battle rap. Man, more, some of y'all know what's up. You're so down. I didn't, I didn't expect that. I get asked uh, quite often, how do you do it? And what they mean by that is, how do you tell someone about Jesus? Like, you're the pastor. How do you, what kind of training have you had? Or what, is it, what does it look like? And really, to be honest with you, for me, this is my uh, angle, or these are the questions that I ask. I think that life is full of asking the right people the right questions to get the right answers. That's just, um, I guess, a rule of thumb that I live by. But here are just some questions that I like to ask people as I meet people out in the city uh, or even here at church. But number one is, where are you from? because so many of us are from somewhere else. We have a lot of people from the Northwest or the Midwest or whatever. People come out here in the wintertime and they can't believe that this is real life. Then they hang around for the summertime and they're like, maybe I will be a six-month resident, you know? Um, But where are you from? And people love to tell you where they're from. And then they'll ask me where I'm from. And then I'll say, well, what brought you here or what do you do for work? And then they'll tell me, well, I'm in tech or I came out here to, to be a principal or coach or start a business or this or that. And then they'll go, how about you? What do you do? And I'll say, oh, I'm a pastor. And they're like, oh, oh, oh yeah. And so I'm like, so what, you know, when do you want to do this? You know, we can go ahead and talk about this right now. So uh, I'll say, are you a Christian? And a lot of times people will say yes. And sometimes people will say no. And I'll ask them, do you want to be? Do you want to be a Christian? And one thing that I have learned, and and usually the answer is yes, I do, or no, I'm not ready for that yet. And to be honest with you, that is the conversation that I have that's the same one I have all the time and and led a lot of people to Jesus like that. A lot of people were like, man, you're weird, leave me alone. And I'm like, that's fine, I I know I'm weird. We're all weird in some way, and I can handle being weird to you. It's fine with me. Uh, But those are the questions that I ask if you're wondering that. And one time I asked a guy, are you a Christian? And he said, I try to be. I tried to be a Christian, and I thought, well, that is an interesting answer. And I said, hey, man, because we were eating wings together, and I said, do you think I just asked you if you're a very good person? And he said, yeah, I totally thought that's what you were asking me. And I'm like, no way, man. I, what a question to ask somebody, you know, like someone on a scale of 1 to 10. How naughty and how nice are you, you know? Like, 
It all depends on what Santa's going to bring. Are you a lump of coal kind of guy or a bicycle kind of guy? And uh, I realized, man, that, that is not what I mean at all. And that's totally what some people think we're asking whenever we say, are you a Christian? They may think, do you understand right things about who God is? They may think we're saying, are you a moral person? Do you behave? Do you do the right thing? Do you help people across the street? That sort of thing. And so um, just to lay a foundation as we get into this text that James is, is kind of blue collar ranting about, um, I wanna lay this groundwork, the difference between religion which is uh, achieved to receive versus the gospel, which is Christ has achieved and we do all the receiving. And so this is formal religion, like this can be uh, Islam, this can be any major religion, any formal uh, religion that would say that God is mad at us or unhappy with us or not pleased with us or is not accepting us unless we change. And then if we will change, then God will accept us or God will love us. And we can even do this with being Baptist if we forget about Jesus. We can take the 10 commandments that God gave to Moses and we can use them as as 10 rungs on a ladder or 10 steps up a mountain that will uh, improve us if we will uh, you know, not have any gods but God, if we'll not commit adultery, if we'll not ever steal, if we'll not ever covet. The only problem is to keep those, you have to lie about yourself and tell yourself untrue things about yourself because no one is able to keep even those 10. Nobody. It's impossible. So religion would say, clean yourself up or pick yourself up or God helps those who helps themselves. You, you impress God, then God will like you and he will let you in. And some people would say, but I don't even believe in God. I'm atheist or agnostic or whatever it is. And, and atheists always uh, kind of uh, are peculiar to me because most of the friends that I know that are atheists, just in my relationships, I'm not talking about Facebook or whatever, people I genuinely know, they're like, there is no God and I hate him, you know? Like, well, how do you get so upset? Like, I totally don't think there's leprechauns. You might, and that's fine. If you find the gold, do share. But uh, I ain't mad about leprechauns, you know? They don't come up in, in you know, conversation, and I don't have a beef with unicorns uh, or, or any of those things. And I don't mean to, I guess I do, I, I am mocking. I do mean to mock, but hopefully mock in the same way that Elijah mocked the false god of Baal and to say, it's telling. To be so upset and so frustrated with a concept that you would disagree with must mean that it might be true and you just don't like it, you know? And so even if you don't believe in a God, there's still humanism and secularism, and that would say that you are not acceptable unless you change. And your God might be your parents. It might be someone who you're codependent upon and you live for their approval. And if you could just make choices that would please them, then you could finally find rest or your heaven. And so your salvation is attached to your behavior modification that would please your parents or your person or whoever it is. And sometimes in secularism or in humanism, it's us. We would say, I'm not acceptable unless I start that business. And, and, that, and I'm not acceptable unless I have this much money in my net worth, or I'm not acceptable unless I can reduce my uh, body fat by this much and how much weight I can throw around by this much. If I could just change my appearance or change my value or change something about me, then I could finally accept myself. And so your functional salvation would be still, you need to change something in your life to even be able to please yourself. Everyone is trying to achieve to receive some kind of acceptance. And that is exhausting. That's why Jesus tells us, come to me and you'll find rest. Outside of the church is perform. Outside of the church is achieve to receive. 
I mean, it's a way God made the world. If you wanna get a paycheck, you need to go work for it. You're gonna trade time for money or you're gonna add value to the culture in such a way that someone wants to hand you money for something that you're able to either make or do. You, that's where your value comes from in vocation. But in the kingdom of heaven, it's, it's inverted. In the kingdom of heaven, we don't climb up the mountain to be with God. God comes down the mountain to be with us. It's the gospel of Jesus, that Jesus keeps the commandments. Jesus does all the performing. Jesus does all the achieving so that we can do all of the receiving. So secularism or humanism or formal religion would say, behave so that you can be saved. The gospel says, believe in the behavior of Jesus, trust in him, and you will be saved, okay? Jesus lives in our place, the life we fail to live of perfection, dies in our place, the death that we deserve, the judgment, the wrath of God poured out on Jesus, <coughs> excuse me, in our place. And then he raises from the dead to give us a real hope, like I said, a handlebars on a Harley Davidson that we can hold on to as we ride this sucker called life. Like our hope is in Jesus and it's not in ourselves. But as we embrace this theology and as we embrace this life transformation, there are two kinds of deceptions that can find their ways or creep their way into our church and into our community groups and onto our service teams. And there is a deception that, that James is warning the New Testament church about uh, in this scripture. And so I'm just gonna roll it out. There's two great deceptions that I have seen. There's two great deceptions that I have lived out even in my own marriage. Back in the early days when uh, Carrie and I first got married, first couple of years were pretty brutal because number one, I figured out, oh, she ain't even a Christian yet. She thought she was, you know, she, she snuck in under the radar. Uh, and I'll tell you that story later. And uh, I was a Christian, but I was naughty. She was, she was not a Christian, but she was nice. I was a Christian, but I was naughty. So it, was, it wasn't good. And so we were both of these when we were about 18, 19 years old. Number one is behaving without believing. Behaving without believing. And the thing you would tell yourself in your internal dialogue, even if your theology was right, you may say in community group, I know I'm saved because of Jesus. But what you functionally believe in your heart is, I know I'm saved because I'm moral. I know I'm saved because I'm better than my husband is what my wife would say when we were 18 and 19 years old. And she was right. I mean, she wasn't saved. She was lost as a goose in a hailstorm. Uh, but she was nicer than me. And some of you will look around and you compare yourself to other people. You have such a little judgmental religious heart and you're so nice about the way you do it, but your heart is so bad. And you compare yourself to your siblings or your parents or the people you're in group with or whatever. And you say, well, I would, I've never committed adultery. I'd never do this or I've never done that. So I know I'm good because I'm living up to a standard that I have set for myself. This is behaving without believing. This is behavior modification without heart transformation. And it's dangerous, okay? Uh, Jesus tells us in Matthew 7 in his Sermon on the Mount that there'll be people um, surprised when they die that they're not Christians. They'll say, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? In your name, did we not cast out devils? Did we not do many wondrous works? And Jesus will say, depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or workers of iniquity, depending on what... Uh, translation you're reading, he says, I never did know you. I never knew you. So you did some stuff in my name, but you'd never worshiped me. You used me. Jesus was useful to get some kind of thing, credit, identity, gratification, but Jesus wasn't beautiful. Their heart was not transformed into worship. Jesus was useful, so they used him as a tool for leverage to get something out of society. 
okay? So that's the first deception. The second deception would be believing without behaving. And that's what James is addressing today, believing without behaving. And what we would say in our internal dialogue is I'm saved because I'm theological. I can theological theologically arm wrestle people and defeat them. I know my Bible well. I know the right things about Jesus. I must be good. And I, and I do want to say this, that gospel, the gospel is a scandal. We don't behave our way into heaven. The thief on the cross right beside Jesus. And one of my favorite little uh, uh, sayings about that or little snippets about that was um, the Scottish uh, preacher, I can't think of his name right now, but he tells the story about the thief on the cross going to heaven and all the angels interviewing him like, what are you doing here? And he's like, I don't know what I'm doing here. And uh, the, the angel's like, well, let me get my supervisor, angel. Uh, have you ever been to a Bible study? He's like, no. He's like, could you, could you really eloquently put the gospel? And he's like, No. And they're like, what are you doing here? And he says, and you've heard this said or saw it on Facebook or heard me preach it, but he says, the man on the middle cross said I could come. Like that is the essence of the gospel, okay? And I believe that if the thief lived more than a, you know, a few more minutes from his conversion, that you would start to see fruit from the root of faith that he believed in his heart about Jesus. Now, we believe in progress, not perfection. This is called sanctification. So if you are a Christian, If you love Jesus, you will be loving God and loving others stronger than you did before. That's the progress you'll start to see. The progress isn't that you just know more about your Bible. The progress isn't just that you behave better even. It's because you can hate people that you serve. (laughs) Did you know that? Did you know you can be nice to people that you despise? Some of you are like, oh yeah, that's not the gospel. That's like Southern niceties or something. You know what I mean? Like that's superficial. Um, That is like you're whitewashed on the outside and you're dead on the inside stuff. And Jesus preaches a lot about that. So, so So the second deception would be, watch out that if you're believing without behaving, in other words, if you have faith, but there's no repentance in your life, beware. That could mean you're not a Christian or that could mean that you're not repenting well. And that's where I was at. That's where I was at years ago. I was like, oh, I believe I'm a Christian. Jesus saved me when I'm seven and I'm still living like I'm seven whenever I'm 19, if that, make, if that makes sense to you. So James is the New Testament's blue collar scholar and he's going to use some words that the apostle Paul uses. Paul uses them more academically in books like Romans where he's exhaustively trying to explain doctrines and James is like, yeah, I ain't doing that. I'm just getting some stuff off my chest. So you're gonna notice that James will use words like justified and faith differently than Paul will use it. He almost uses it like slang terms or he's trying to oversimplify ideas. And so, uh, so James is a country boy and that's how country folks talk. That's how I talk. I'm an oversimplifier. Uh, there's been times after a service, someone pulled me aside and say, pastor, I don't know that I agree with what you said up there. And I'll, and I'll say, well, tell me what I said up there. And they'll say, well, you said this. And I'll say, oh yeah, I disagree with that too. Because sometimes we mean what we say, but we don't say what we mean. Who knows what I'm talking about? You ever done that? Yeah, oh yeah. Some of y'all are like, yeah, I'm married. I've done that. I've been, I've been there. But, uh, but country folks say stuff like, bless your heart. Right? Who's, that, who's ever received that? Who's ever been told, bless your heart? Oh yeah, yeah. Do you uh, want me to define that term for you? No. Who said, bless your heart? Oh, a couple of you, all right, yeah. 
Yeah, bless your heart means I'll pray for you. It means like you're, you know, you might be a few bricks shy of a load. Uh, it's kind of what that means. Uh, starving to death. My kids will say, we're starving to death. Like we are, that's not true. We're not starving. That means we're hungry. But that's how blue collar folk talk. I'm starving to death. I've heard parents, I've heard my parents tell me I'm going to beat you. One thing Carrie and I learned when we first moved here is like, we can't talk like we used to talk. Because we don't literally mean that. We just mean, if you don't stop, there will be pain in your life enough for you to change your behavior. Anyways. So we'll say stuff like, I love chicken fried steak. Yes. Yes. And so love can mean lots of different things. And one, here's one of these is like, don't be ugly. Don't be, one of my favorite, we got friends in this church from Alabama. And I love y'all from the Midwest and the South because you guys talk right. And uh, we were in community group one night and their little boy, blonde headed little boy, he, I don't remember what, he had a problem. I don't know what his problem was, but his, his mama was trying to explain to him to knock it off and she kept telling him, you're being ugly. You're being ugly, you stop being ugly. And I was watching the moms who weren't from the South or the Midwest and they were looking at me like, that seems abusive. That little boy is not ugly. And so I had to like call time out and be like, oh, let me tell you what she means is he's, he's being disrespectful. He's, he's not obeying. Like in the, so deep in the heart of Alabama, everyone would know what mom means. And so anyways, if you'll give James a little bit of grace when he uses words like justified and faith a little differently than Paul would use it, and I hope that I can be helpful and explain that. So uh, that's the introduction. I told you I got a handheld mic. It's going to get, you know, my grandpa's a Pentecostal preacher, and so that stuff may start oozing out of me because I got a handheld instead of, anyways. uh, So verse 14, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? And this is a rhetorical question, and James is saying it ain't any good. That's That's what he's getting at. Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of them says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In other words, what James is saying is if you have these ideas without action, you're like clouds without rain. And if you've ever had a friend like make plans with you and then you're like expect like, hey, I'm moving. They're like, yeah, I'm in, I'm totally in. And then you're like, hey, we got everything boxed up. Where are you at? Oh, I slept through my alarm. I don't know where I am. Like I've been kidnapped by the Mexican mafia or whatever. Like, you know, like they have this crazy story and then you realize, oh, every time we make plans, they always have a really good reason they can't be here. They're clouds without rain. Or if you've ever had a dad who always told you we're going fishing this weekend and you grew up with 18 years worth of weekends and you never went fishing, the disappointment and the frustration of you say things that you don't mean, it's empty. This would be like, this kind of biblical information leads to a um, surface level Christianity, which isn't Christianity at all. This is when we use platitudes and like, like if I'm ever um, just discipling the fellas and I say like, what do you want to work on this year? Like, oh, I just want to be a better man. <laughs> sure you do. I think you're using church talk to try to get me to go, oh yeah, brother. How specifically would you like to be a better man? I have an idea. Let's call your wife. She'll give us some goals. 
But you, we've all done this. We've all used platitudes and we've used piety and try to carry an air about ourselves that we know more than we do or we're further along than we are. And it's, it's um, evil. It's not godly. And this is what uh, James is saying the problem is. Like some of them are saying, I love you. And what they really mean is I like the way I feel around you and I like making promises to you. And you're kind of living off of a reputation rather than living off of character. And so we've seen this in, in friendship. We've seen this in parenting. We've seen this in business. Uh, how many of you have ever done a job for someone and you went to get paid and they don't live here anymore, you know? Or you went to collect rent from someone and they are gone, you know? Clouds without rain. That's what James is kind of saying, like faith without works. And he's not saying faith like the way Paul would describe faith, but he's saying, if you say you believe in Jesus and you love Jesus and you treat people like that, something isn't right. That's what he's saying. If you say you love Jesus and this is the way you treat people, something is wrong. You either are not a Christian or you need to repent. And in verse 18, James says, some will say, you have faith and I have works. In other words, you have belief and I have behaviors. That was kind of me and Carrie's marriage when we were 19, 18, 19. Show me your faith apart from your works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. And when he says that, don't don't skip over that. What he's saying is, you believe a very particular doctrine about God that is quite different than the rest of the culture. Everyone else around them were polytheists. That means they believed in several gods. And so whatever God was popular at the time, that was the God that they would worship. They believed in the Greek gods and goddesses. They might believe in the false god Baal or whatever culturally would get them personal gain in society. Now, he's talking to Jewish Christians who would say, we're not polytheists, we're monotheists. We believe in one God. And we even understand that the Trinity is three in one, that he is God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit is God, okay? And so James is saying to them, well done, good job. You went to Sunday school or whatever. You learned that, that's good. It's good, but you do well. But what you need to know is even the demons believe that same thing. That's what he says right here. He says, um, you believe that God is one, you do well, but even the demons believe and they shudder. You don't even shudder. You use it as like a um, social prop uh, to get leverage in some relationships. And I'm telling you that the demons even believe and, would, and say, Jesus, please delay judgment, okay? He says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? So he not only talks about a dead faith, which would be knowing and not doing, but he's also saying there's a dynamic faith demonic faith, which is information without transformation. And so not to overdo it and, and, and teach a whole doctrinal position on uh, demonology or anything like that, because I think if you do too much of that, you're probably more like a cult leader than a pastor. Uh, so yeah, I do. I really, yeah. And I already got the handheld mic, so let's not, you know, create an avalanche. Uh, so uh, Satan and demons were created beings. We are created beings. Satan led a revolt in heaven with angels, and, a, and the Bible tells us a third of the angels fell and started a war with God and his angels over glory, that uh, Satan was basically the worship leader. Rob, where you at? Learn from this. Watch out for this. But, uh, but Satan was basically the worship leader in heaven, and God was in charge, and Satan was like, well, I don't like the way you've made me. I'm not comfortable with my body image or my pronouns or any of that stuff. I want to change all that. And I want, God, you made a mistake in the way that you made me, okay? So he said, I want your job. You be the worship leader, I be God. God said, I don't think so. 
almost said scooter, and some of y'all know where that came from, and that ain't okay. Anyways, he said, I don't think so. And so God issues a, a verdict. He says, I'm crea- there's hell created, and all of the demons and Satan will go to hell. And they wait for the day of that verdict to be brought out, for that sentence to begin. Right now, uh, the Bible tells us that Satan roams the earth like a lion looking for those that he can devour. Demons roam the earth, and they deceive us and lie to us, and we believe terrible ideas that are demonic ideas, and uh, stuff like, well, maybe God is uh, in control, but he's not any good, or maybe God is good, but he's not really in control, or maybe I should doubt God, or maybe everybody's, you know, maybe we can't trust the church, or whatever bad ideas you probably have about church are demonic ideas. Um, anyways, and so people, so, so demons do not get to repent. Demons do not get to say, I'm sorry, I got it wrong, forgive me. They, they got the sentence, and the verdict will be issued, and one day they'll burn forever in hell. But for us as created images in the image of God, he said, repent, believe. Yeah, I give you the chance to be saved. I give you the chance to turn from your sin, your behaviors and your sin nature. And the gospel is preached. There's no gospel for Satan and his demons, but there's gospel for humanity. And so that's what uh, James is emphasizing is saying, listen, believe that gospel that you talk about. Use that gospel like a 10 millimeter socket and don't leave it laying around somewhere. Use it, embrace it, live a life of confession and repentance. Live a life of proclamation of the gospel so that others would believe. Don't use this as an ideology to gain some kind of social acceptance because if you understood what you were playing around with, you would shudder because the demons shudder because they have no opportunity for faith and repentance. But James is saying, you have opportunity for faith and repentance. And so this is what happened to my wife. So my wife, uh, she grew up uh, with a, her grandpa was her pastor for a, a long time. Her dad was a deacon in her church. Her sister uh, became a Christian when she was, I don't know, maybe 12, 13, 14, something like that. And when her sister made a profession of faith, they asked Carrie, do you want to do this too? Or maybe Carrie said, I want to I wanna be a Christian too. And so the girls got baptized together. So Kristen and Carrie got baptized by their grandpa. And for years, my wife thought, well, I'm a Christian. I'm good. I'm good because, especially because my, you know, my preacher grandpa baptized me and I prayed a prayer one time saying, forgive me of my sin. The only problem was when we got married, I didn't see a lot of confession of sin. I don't know if y'all know what I'm talking about. Like, yeah, you're like, don't use this for free counseling. (laughs) But uh, here's what I mean by that. My wife would do the right thing. She knew her Bible. She would help people. She would be nice to people and I, that I couldn't stand. And I'm like, you're just, you should pastor the church, you know? And I'm a pastor at this point. By the time, when I'm 21, I, be, I become a pastor. And from the time we're 21 to 28, um, it's not like my wife was living this great lie and she wasn't sneaking out at night and running drugs on the border or anything like that. It was just that she was trusting in her morality to save her. Like she would say, you know, if we, we like, what's the gospel? She'd say, well, Jesus died in our place for our sins. But deep in her heart, what she really believed is, I'm better than other people. Like that's my functional savior is my list of nevers. I've never done this. I've never done that. I've never done this. I've never done that. And my husband's a pastor and he's been a Christian since he was seven and he's done all kinds of stupid stuff. You know, I'm better than, I'm just being honest with you. But that's a demonic faith. 
And whenever we were, what, 28? I'm looking out there for my bride. We are about 28 years old. We were at a church camp. We brought a bunch of teenagers that were looking for no good and up to no good uh, to go hear the gospel. And while this guy named Mike Keybone was preaching, um, he just looked out there and he just did one of these. He probably had one of these in his hand. And he said, and you might be a pastor's wife and you need to be saved. And my wife was like, And here's the thing about the gospel is, we don't all get saved when we're five or seven or 10. Sometimes it's on our deathbed, like the thief on the cross by Jesus. Like when that faith comes over us and possesses us and awakens our heart, it's a gift of God. It's a gift of God. It's not like she was delaying some decision for years. It was she didn't know the difference until she knew the difference. And some of you will, will be like these people James is talking about. You, you have belief, you say the right things, but you, you don't love people, you hold grudges. You don't say, I'm sorry, I was wrong. Um, your, your heart isn't soft, you're not teachable. You're, uh, someone can't confront you and when you're wrong without you blowing up and protecting yourself. You hide your sins, you don't confess your sins. Um, you hold things over others or end relationships rather than granting forgiveness, all the while singing the VeggieTales songs you learned when you were a kid and making sure you don't watch rated R movies. You know Your heart isn't transformed. Even though you have the information, you have not experienced the transformation. Okay, so verse 21, James says, was not Abraham our father just, and by the way, I got to baptize my wife. That was pretty cool. That was, that was pretty cool. Uh, she loves Jesus and knows she's saved because of Jesus and not that she's better than me. So, yeah. So verse 21 is this, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac? Now, Paul would raise his hand or stop this sermon and say, James, what are you doing? You're using that word wrong. James would say, I don't care. I got something to say, okay? What James is saying is your, your justification. Justification is the moment you believe that Jesus raised from the dead and died in your place and your heart is changed. You are made just as if you'd never sinned in the throne room of heaven. Now, what, if you read this at face value, it looks like James is saying that Abraham justified himself when he obeyed God, when he did a moral deed, Now, it's more complex than that. James is simplifying it. But what James is pointing to is the evidence of that justification. He's saying that Abraham was changed. And he'll he'll go on to explain it. Let me read it. Uh, James does a better job than I do. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. And faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham, so, so the, here's Abraham's justification in the legal term that Paul would use. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. That's Pauline justification. That's what you're gonna hear me preach all the time. Um, And James says, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works, not by faith alone. What he's saying is it transforms you when you're justified by faith. He's using justified and faith a little different than we're used to reading it, but he's oversimplifying to saying, if you got struck by lightning, you'd walk crooked. If you got hit by a truck, you'd have a hitch in your get along. If you get married, you should change. You don't have girlfriends anymore if you're a fella, and you don't have guy friends anymore if you're a girl, right? You change. Something happens to you, and you change. What James is saying is Abraham changed. Now, Abraham was a knothead. Abraham was a bad husband. He wasn't a good dad. He came up with some bad ideas. 
God made a promise that he would have a baby. He thought, how about I sleep with one of my employees? That's how I'll get my baby. God's like, golly, look what I'm working with here. <laughs> so I don't want you thinking that Abraham was perfect. He, there was progress, that he started obeying God from trusting God. He kept trusting God, and there was this progress in his sanctification. So a person, when James says a person is justified by works and not faith alone, he's saying there's some kind of heart change, some kind of life change. If you live long enough, you'll see some kind of progress, progress in your sanctification as you walk with Jesus. And in the same way was not also Rahab, the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So what James is pointing to is the evidence of faith or the evidence of grace. Sometimes we think of evidence of grace as I got promoted at work and evidence of grace is I asked God for something and I got it and that's an evidence of grace. And certainly it can be. But if you really wanna dig around for an evidence of grace, it's that you can't say those hate-filled things you used to say anymore without feeling deep in your heart, that ain't right. And you can't hold a grudge with someone anymore because your love for them now is greater than their capacity to wound you. And it's supernatural. You don't muster that stuff up. There's things that happened in your marriage decades ago that you've been harboring bitterness against. You're not gonna leave, but you're not gonna love. And then you come in a encounter with Jesus and his gospel and you've been struck by lightning and now all of a sudden you lower yourself to lift up someone else. There's evidence This is information plus application leading to transformation. Faith is evidenced by action. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And so I wanna leave you with this, this this, um, note that people do what they believe. People do what they believe. Jesus says, be generous. If your bank account doesn't show generosity, you don't believe him. You don't. If Jesus says, confess your sins to those and you'll find healing and you continue to hide your sins, you don't really believe that. If Jesus says, forgive those who have sinned against you and you don't do that, you don't really believe that. You intellectually embrace a concept that it is probably true, but because of your little postmodern heart, you don't know if it's true for you, right? That's sin. And it ain't anything you can't repent of. It ain't anything you can't repent of. So I got two questions for you. Number one is this. Are you behaving for your acceptance? Are you trying to change, to get God to love you or like you or accept you? Are you behaving to get someone other than God to accept you or approve of you? Or are you behaving from your acceptance? In other words, are you experiencing a transformed heart? Are you getting information and applying it to your life, leading to transformation. Only you know the answer to that. We can't look into the, your soul and say, say that what you're doing, but ask yourself, am I, am I changing because I believe I'm so accepted by God or am I still motivated by guilt? One is I'm motivated by grace and how God loves me and is for me. And the other one is I'm trying to change because I'm scared he might send me to hell, okay? Believe God when he says he loves us. And the next question is, are you believing without obeying? Is Christianity just a theology to you? Is it just an intellectual concept that you could 
spar with others over and defeat them in a battle of wit, but you're not loving people well and you're not loving God well. You're not seeing a pattern of repentance in your life. You're not seeing a pattern of faith and obedience in your life. And I would just say, because I love you, and if you'll let me be your pastor to say, be warned, your faith just might be dead in the way that James talks about it. You might not be a Christian. A Christian is not somebody who knows the right things. A Christian is somebody who's been made right by Jesus because of our faith in him. And so I said this last week, I'll say it again. Um, The simplest terms is to believe in your heart that Jesus raised from the dead and to confess with your mouth that he is your Lord. In other words, you, and it eventually works its way out with your hands and your feet to where you obey him. And that obedience looks a lot like telling others when you got it wrong, dad sitting at the foot of the bed with their kids and saying, I messed up today, will you forgive me? Let's both go to God because I'm not God. Obedience looks like loving someone that you don't like very much. Obedience looks like doing what Jesus told us to do even when we don't feel like it. And that's where all the joy is. Let's pray.